Now, as you can probably tell, tonight is going to be uh, slightly different. Uh, In our study in the book of Exodus, uh, we are up to the portion of the ten plagues. And I've decided that I would like to give you um, an overview of the whole drama, and then we'll come back to consider um, some portions in more detail. Um, So tonight will be more of a lecture than it will be uh, typical preaching. And I will be honest with you, it will be slightly longer than normal, but I trust the pictures have brought me a little bit more time. So we we will start in uh, Exodus chapter 7, and we'll work our way um, from there. Uh, The title for the sermon this evening is The Folly of Idolatry. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, what a great joy and privilege it is to be able to meet in this simple way to come and worship you. Uh, Father, you are a great God. You are um, indeed um, worthy of our worship. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. And Lord, I I do pray tonight as as we seek to understand uh, this portion of Scripture that that, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate uh, this text for us. Uh, Lord, please give us uh, understanding. And Lord, please feed us from your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Ten Plagues are a very well-known Bible story, and it is my intention this evening uh, to give you a deeper understanding of a narrative that you know rather well, and that is often quite difficult uh, as a preacher. So in beginning, I want to highlight three uh, hermeneutical considerations that are important in understanding uh, the Ten Plagues. Now, the first of which is that the plagues are historical. It is important to remind you that the plagues are history, not fiction. It isn't an allegory. This is not some story concocted from the pen of Moses in order to teach us some spiritual truth. No, sure, it most definitely does have much spiritual depth, and we will wade into these waters But it does not mean it is not historical. It is an incredibly dangerous position to hold to when one starts thinking that the Old Testament is full of make-believe stories. Those stories that simply contain some moral principle, like a nursery rhyme or or a Walt Disney production. Uh, But unfortunately, this is a common position. But my friend, who who decides what is historical and what is not? If the plagues are just a story, if Noah is just a story, how do we know that Jesus dying on the cross was not just another made-up story? Who determines what is historical? What is the criteria? And isn't it at least slightly misleading if the Bible portrays this as historical when it is not? Surely one is on shaky ground when they start interpreting the Word of God this way. The ten plagues are unleashed on a real country, on a real people in real time by a real God. And this leads us to the second consideration. The plagues are miraculous. There are basically three ways of approaching the phenomenon of the ten plagues. 
Uh, one is to dismiss them as a myth or a story, which we have just addressed. And there are two more possibilities. Now, the first of these is to explain them away as natural occurrences. Uh, most liberal scholars adopt this particular approach. Uh, they can see that the plagues, the plagues were perhaps more intense, but there was nothing miraculous about their appearance or disappearance. Uh, the second approach is that the plagues are miraculous. Uh, they are directly from the hand of God. Now, this particular view does not deny that natural occurrences similar to the plagues would have unfolded in Egypt, but this was much more than this. Now, one scholar gives five reasons. Two, sorry, I've had something pop up that shouldn't be there. Now, one scholar gives five reasons as to why the plagues are miraculous and not just natural occurrences. The first of these is the intensity. So while frogs, insects and darkness were known in Egypt, they were intensified in these plagues beyond any natural occurrence. The second reason is predictability. Now, the fact that Moses predicted both the arrival and the departure of these plagues, this sets it apart from a natural occurrence. The third reason is that of discrimination. Certain plagues did not occur in the part of the land where the Israelites were living. How could this be explained by a natural occurrence? The fourth reason is orderliness. There is a gradual severity in the nature of the plagues. It gets worse and worse and worse, culminating the death of the firstborn. And the fifth reason is moral purpose. These were not freaks of nature, but purposefully designed to teach moral precepts and lessons. And it is for these five reasons, and also plus the the plain reading of the text conveys the miraculous. That's important. And hence, this is how we ought to interpret the plagues. Now, the third hermeneutical consideration is the structure of the plagues. As you can see from this chart. I apologize the writing's small. I'm trying to fit a lot of information in one chart. But these these plagues break up into three groups of three, with the Passover being the climax. So the first, the fourth, and the seventh judgments are introduced by the words in the morning. The second, fifth, and eighth mention going unto Pharaoh. probably meaning the palace. And the third, the sixth, and the ninth contain no warning whatsoever. In plagues one through to three, Aaron uses his staff. In plagues four through to six, there is no mention of a staff. And in plagues seven through to nine, it is Moses' staff that is used. So the patterns that I have endeavoured to point out 
reveals to us that there is a purposefulness behind the plagues. They are not random, they are not haphazard. And as an aside, when we think of the structure of the plagues, we must understand that they occurred over a period of time. This wasn't something that unfolded in a couple of weeks. This was months. A lot of scholars identify a nine-month period. And this is important because it helps us to overcome some supposed difficulties that critics raise with the narrative. So with these hermeneutical foundations laid, it enables us to move on to an incredibly important question. What is the point? What is the purpose? What is the Lord endeavouring to achieve in releasing a barrage of ferocious plagues? And there are at least three reasons Number one, judgments upon Egypt and judgment upon Pharaoh. The Egyptians had oppressed God's people. We have seen this through our study. They were persecuted. They were treated brutally. They were oppressed. The treatment was repulsive. And the plagues were God's vengeance or punishment released upon the Pharaoh and his People, Exodus 3.20 says that Yahweh was going to smite Egypt. And it is this that occurs in the plagues. The Lord is punishing the Egyptians. And my friend, this is also a reminder that Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis chapter 12. I will bless them that bless you. And what was the second part? I will curse them that curse you. And the Egyptians found out that this was not some empty threats. Yahweh was, a, was and is a covenant-keeping God. He was going to destroy Egypt economically, politically, socially, religiously, all in judgments. The second reason is deliverance of Israel. Now Exodus 3.20 tells us that the Lord would smite Egypt so that Pharaoh would let his people go. Oh, God was going to deliver his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. They were going to be redeemed. And this was going to be brought about by the plagues. The plagues would also remind Israel who their God is. Oh, the plagues were just as much a testimony to Israel about the greatness of God than it was to the Egyptians. For it's evident that many of God's people had been caught up, had been ensnared in the idolatry that was rife through the Egyptian culture. And this leads us to the third reason for the plagues. It was judging Egyptian gods. Everything in Egypt was religious. And what that means is that everything was linked to one of their many gods. So when the Lord goes against Egypt, he's taking on their gods. Exodus 12.12 says, Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. 
So the plagues would show that God was above all of the pagan gods. It would declare the Lord's supremacy. Now one commentator said this about the purpose of the plagues. Now by entering into the spheres which were ruled by the gods of Egypt and by overruling them, by predicting exactly what would happen, And by causing the prediction to come to pass, by leaving the magicians with all their arts outdistanced and ashamed, Jehovah gave incontestable proof that he was God of gods. And tonight I want to show to you how the ten plagues declared the Lord's supremacy, his sovereignty, his superiority over the Egyptian deities. How these judgments declare loudly that our God is the one true and living God. So let's start with plague number one, which was water into blood. So let's read from Exodus uh, chapter 7. We'll read from verse 19 down to 21, which says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood, And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. In understanding how devastating this first plague is, it's vital for you and I to understand that this river, the Nile, was considered to be the lifeblood or the heartbeat of Egypt. Their very survival was dependent on this river. Without this river, Egypt could not exist. Each year in July or August, it would flood. It would be a massive flood. And this flood would turn the desert land into fertile plains. And this would enable agriculture. And hence, this is why the Nile was esteemed so highly. So much so that the river was regarded as a god, typical of Egypt. They sang this hymn, O Nile, the bringer of food, rich in provision, creator of all good, Lord of majesty, a sweet fragrance. They sang that to the river. And it is here where the plague destruction begins. And this would have been alarming. For this was attacking their very livelihood. The glorious Nile turned to a foul heap. Thick, gooey blood. Imagine the look on the Egyptians' face when they saw their precious river. This miracle would have been shocking for the Nile. This was vital for their agriculture. It would have destroyed their economy. They washed in it, they drank it, and this was all taken away. And even further than this, it led to great death and decay throughout the river system. Imagine the hideous stink of all of the dead fish, of all of the sea creatures. 
and what this would do to the Egyptian economy. You know, they sold these fish. And then there is the crocodile problem. Egypt is notorious for having crocodiles. If there's no food in the river, they'll come out of the water and they would be hungry. So there's lots of issues. Now, in pondering this first plague, I couldn't help but to think that this is the reaping and sowing principle. Oh, the Egyptians never cared about the innocent Hebrew blood that was shed in their very river. And now they can endure their entire river being turned to blood. But what I would like to stress is the fact that this was a direct attack against varying Egyptian deities. Oh, many gods were associated with the Nile. Remember, the river itself was treated like a deity. It was regarded as a provider of life, and now it looks like an instrument of death. Then there was these gods. Now, excuse my pronunciation, I'm not an expert in Egyptian gods. So the god Kanam was considered to be the guardian of the Nile. He was the protector of this river. It's pretty obvious that he had failed. There was Hapi. He was believed to be the spirit of the Nile. There was Hathor. This god was the guardian of the fish. Needless to say, this god did not do its job too well. All the fish are dead. And then there's Osiris, who was one of the greatest deities. The Egyptians believed that the Nile was his bloodstream. And how appropriate the Lord turned it to blood as though this God is bleeding to death. Yahweh is literally devastating their deities. The second plague is the plague of frogs. So let's read from Exodus chapter 8 and we'll read from verse 3 down to verse 6. Which says, And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed, and into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come upon shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Egypt normally had an abundance of frogs. Frogs were held in high esteem. They represented fruitfulness, blessing, and assurance of harvest. In fact, they regarded the frog as having divine power. And I read that one was not allowed to intentionally kill a frog. In fact, if you did this, you would be put to death. That's how they regarded the frog. So if you chase cane toads with golf clubs, you're in trouble in Egypt. You know, the thing with frogs is that they normally lived in and around the Nile. But in this particular plague, they, they rapidly multiplied and they spread everywhere. You know, the text tells us they were in the homes, they were in the food, they were in 
people's beds. Imagine pulling back your blankets and there's frogs everywhere. You know, or trying to walk and you would be stepping on them. You know, this would be gross. Now imagine the noise of all of these silly things croaking. It would be deafening. You know, I read this uh, description from one writer and I want to give it to you because I think he paints the picture wonderfully. And he said this, you know, like a blanket of filth, the slimy, wet monstrosities covered the land until men sickened at the conditioned, squashing crunch of the ghastly pavement they were forced to walk upon. If a man's feet slipped on the greasy mess of their crushed bodies, he fell into an offensive mess of putrid uncleanness. And when he sought water to cleanse himself, the water was so solid with frogs he couldn't get in to get clean. You know, I I think you get the picture. And remember, the people could do nothing about it, for it was a capital offense to kill a frog. You know, I know if my mum was the pharaoh, this would have been the end of it. She's petrified of frogs. And I know she's not alone, and this is nightmare-type stuff within this second play. But the question is, why, why frogs? Now, while the frog itself was deified... And there was a goddess named Heketz. And this goddess had the form of a woman with a frog's head. You know, very attractive as you can see. And the Egyptians believed that from her nostrils came the breath of life that animated the bodies of those created by her husband. And what is very ironic is that this goddess was regarded as the god of fertility and helping women during childbirth. So here, the blessing of fertility that this deity supposedly represented now becomes a curse because there's frogs everywhere. And the ladies who would have normally adored this god because she blessed them with child and helped them through childbirth would now despise her because the frogs are in her home. They've overtaken everything. So the folly of their idolatry is again revealed. And the inferiority of this frog goddess is made glaringly obvious. Plague 3 is lice. Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through to 17 Which says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. With Pharaoh's heart becoming harder, This third plague is unleashed with no warning. And the land is now filled with these little critters. Perhaps they were lice, or some think they were more like mosquitoes. This was a miracle of creation, and that is why the magicians couldn't mimic this. Picture the scene, Aaron's got his rod, and he smites the dirt, and up arose all of these lice. Imagine seeing this, this layer of dirt arising and then taking off throughout the land. 
You know, one scholar said of these lice, it was the species so small as to be hardly visible to the eye, but with a sting which causes much painful irritation of the skin. You know, if this was lice, imagine the intense itch when you were covered with these little things. It would be impossible to stop. There's no antihistamine. You couldn't take Phenergan. No one would be constantly scratching. It would be impossible to sleep. Now imagine how irritating it would be to have these lice in your eyes, in your nose, in your mouth, in your ears. Or perhaps they were mosquitoes. I don't know about you, but I get annoyed with one mosquito. Imagine millions of them, that high-pitched squeal and the pain of thousands of bites that would cover one's body. It's not a very nice thought. It is important to note that these lice come from the dirt. And hence this was an attack against the earth gods, proving their inability to halt this miracle. There was Set, who was the god of the desert dirt, which was the red dirt. And then there was Hores, who was the god of the black dirt. And the Lord brought great devastation from their domain. It come from the earth, proving their complete incompetency. But it didn't stop there. Plague 4, we have the plague of flies. Exodus chapter 8. And let's read from verse 21. Now else if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thy houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people. No, tomorrow shall be this tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so, and there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' house, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of flies. You know, most people hate flies. They are annoying, they are gross, they are disease-carrying critters. You know, I know my dear wife gets upset if there's one fly in our home. You know, imagine swarms of flies taking over a country. Thick walls of these hideous creatures. Now, this is the fourth plague before us that begins the second cycle. Now, we are told that they filled the land completely, even the palace of Pharaoh. Wherever you looked, wherever you went, all you could see was flies. Imagine the annoyance of the noise. Now imagine the maggots being laid everywhere and all the diseases produced. Now you could kill one on your arm and ten more would replace them. And many scholars think that these flies were most probably of the stinging variety. Now like that March fly that we get in our area. So they would have also inflicted much pain. I'd like you to notice the descriptive words used in verse 24. There's grievous swarms. So this speaks of intensity and severity. The Hebrew word is used elsewhere to describe oppression. 
And notice at the end of verse 24, it says that the land was corrupted. Literally, it was destroyed. It was good for nothing. The flies wrecked everything. Now, interestingly enough, the Egyptians had a god named Uachit. And this particular god was connected with the flies. In fact, this god was believed to manifest herself as a fly, as you can see in the picture. Now, I, I can't imagine why in the world you would worship a fly, but they did. You know, and this thing that was worshipped had now completely devoured the land, you know, making a complete mockery of this deity. Plague number five is the death of livestock. So Exodus chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 2. Now if thou refuse to let them go, and would hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. There shall be very grievous moraine. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And there shall nothing die of all that is the children of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow. And all the cattle of Egypt died. But if the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. The first four plagues were irritating and painful. But this fifth brought about great personal loss. The livestock of the land, cows, horses, oxen, sheep, camels, they were, they were struck down with this dreadful disease. The one that was probably highly contagious and definitely fatal. And this would have obliviated the food supply. It would have destroyed the local economy. And as an aside, notice that the Israelites' livestock is not affected. This is amazing. And this abolishes the theory that this was a natural event. For a natural event would not be so discriminant. Picture the great devastation that this must have inflicted on the land. Dead beasts everywhere. Thousands of animals losing their life. This would have been a horrific sight and an even worse smell. To comprehend this plague, we must understand that animals were sacred and that and they were worshipped, particularly cows and horses. It's a lot like modern India, how they worship the cow. Now, these animals that were considered sacred, that were considered godlike, had been brutally destroyed. And also there are two particular gods who were obliviated in this plague. You know, one being Apis, who was the bull god, and the people trusted him for f- fertility. How interesting that all of the animals have lost their lives. And there was also Hathor. That was a goddess of love, of beauty and joy. And she was in the form of a cow. And obviously love, joy and beauty were definitely not attributes present at this time. As the symbol of this god was annihilated. The Lord continues to destroy this idol system piece by piece. Plague number six is boils. 
Exodus chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. O Moses obeys the instructions that had been given, and he takes some ashes from a furnace. This furnace may well have been a brick kiln, which would symbolize the affliction that Israel had been under. And he takes this dust and he casts it up into the heavens. And both man and beast were struck down with these boils. The bodies of the Egyptians were now under attack. These boils would have caused great pain. And the Hebrew words used seem to convey that these sores blistered up and then they turned into open, oozy, ulcerous things. They're not a very nice thoughts, they're very painful. And what is particularly fascinating is that the Egyptians were very aware of the dangers of disease and infection. And hence they had many deities to protect them. There was Shechemetz was responsible for preventing disease. Now, obviously, this God had failed miserably. Then there was Serapis, the God of healing. And that also failed, for the people were not healed. And then uh, there was uh, I'm Hotep. This was the God of medicine, who also failed to help. Oh, these gods failed miserably in preventing the disease, nor could they provide any assistance. Now, as I thought about this, these gods must not have been very popular with the people who were suffering during this time. Their gods had abandoned them. You know, once again, Yahweh must have looked on and laughed at these supposed gods. Now, plague number seven is hail. Exodus chapter 9 We'll read verses 18 through to 19, which says, Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain a very grievous hail, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. Send therefore now and gather thy cattle, and all that thou hast in the field, for every man and beast which shall be found in the field shall not be brought home. The hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. Now, I'm sure most of us have witnessed you know, some pretty scary storms. We've probably been involved in big hailstorms. But this was the mother of all storms. Thunder, hail, lightning, rain, fire on the ground from the storm. As such was the severity that it killed both man and beast. It destroyed crops, stripping them bare. Now, imagine the great damage. The havoc that this storm inflicted on Egypt, the wrecked buildings, the infrastructure destroyed, the agricultural industry obliviated. And during all of this destruction, where was Egypt's gods? No, Set. He was the god of storms. And yet he was powerless to stop Yahweh's storm. There was nuts. 
She was the sky god. And this god was accredited as the great benefactor who gave goodness from the sky. But here, here it all went haywire. Where was nuts? Then there was Shu. That was the god of the atmosphere and was meant to have a calming effect. Surely this was the time to, to calm things down and yet that didn't happen. And then there is Osiris, the god of crops. And yet this god could not save the crops from the hailstorms. My friend, more gods have been proven to be powerless. Plague number eight is locusts. Exodus 10. And let's read from verse 4. Now else if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast. And they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. Locusts, they are really the white ants of the farming industry. And to this very day, these creatures wreak much havoc. Now, did you know that a locust is capable of eating its own weight every single day? Now, one square mile of locust will contain between 100 million and 200 million locusts. They are able to fly at a cruising speed of 15 to 20 kilometers an hour for 20 hours at a time. These little insects are incredible. And they will literally devastate an entire nation. And we are told in verse 14 that this locust swarm was like none before. And there will never be one like it again. It covered the earth. Literally, you could not see the ground. They had invaded every grain of dirt. And they engulfed whatever was left or whatever had regrown from the hail. Verse 15 tells us that they ate all the crops, all the herbs, all the fruit. There was nothing left. The Egyptians, they're in an economic crisis. The creatures even invaded their homes and would have eaten the food within. There's literally very little food left. The nation is obliviated. You know, within this plague, all the gods of the crops and the gods of the land were useless. Set and Osiris, who were supposed to protect the land and the crops, again were useless. They failed with the hail, they failed with the locust. And then there was Nepur, the god of grain. He certainly failed. The crops were gone. And then there was the deity that let them down the most within this plague. And that's the goddess Serapia. There was one job she had to do, and that was to protect Egypt from locusts. That, that, that was her role. You know, where was she? Well, I guess she was on holidays or something. You know, once again, the Lord is proving his supremacy. And he must have laughed from the heavens at, at these pagan deities. Plague number nine is darkness. Uh, Exodus chapter 10. And let's read from verse 21. And it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. 
And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now the night's plague, there was no warning, and the land was struck with a darkness that they had never known, so thick that it could be felt, so dark that you could not see another individual. You're waving your hand in front of your face and you can see nothing. Mobility was an impossibility, and this lasted for three days. What a terrifying time this would have been, particularly if you're scared of the dark. You know, for the parents here, imagine trying to console your children for three days of darkness. You know, picture it in your head, there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no stars, no natural light whatsoever. A kind of spooky. And then you hear that over in Goshen, they had lights. You know, surely this would have to make you scratch your head and ask, why? You know, this plague of darkness may not seem to be as brutal or damaging as some of the previous plagues, but it dealt a devastating blow to the Egyptian religion. An arrow was shot through the heart of their supreme gods. In the plethora of gods, there was a supreme god. And you've probably heard of this god, and that was Ra. He was the sun god. The most worshipped and revered God. No hymns of praise were sung unto Ra, thanking him for daily presenting himself, for rising at dawn without ceasing. But the question is, where was he for these three days? The most powerful God must have stayed in bed. This plague of darkness struck the very heart of Egyptian worship. Now, it's, it humbled all of the sun gods, for there are numerous. But most tellingly, it utterly humiliated the greatest gods. He was humbled. He was made to look impotent. He couldn't stop the Lord. You know, and yet, despite all of the gods being proved useless, the hard-hearted Pharaoh still refused to hearken. And this resulted in the most devastating plague. Plague, rather. Plague number 10, the death of the firstborn. Exodus chapter 12, and we'll read from verse 29. It says, And it came to pass, that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Egypt was battered and bruised. It, It had been devastated. Their once booming economy was now in ruin. Resources were next to non-existent. No doubt fear and anxiety would have been sky high, particularly since their gods had been proven useless. They were silent. Where were they? And yet despite everything that had been unleashed, it all pales into insignificance compared to the utter destruction that was wrought in this final plague. The Lord himself struck the fatal blow on all the firstborn who were not covered by the bloods. 
This was com- completely indiscriminate from the Pharaoh to the lowest prisoner, both man and beast. You know, imagine the devastation. Imagine the sorrow. Imagine the wailing as they realized the utter destruction that had been unleashed. Now imagine the poor mother that walked into her child's room to find the child lifeless. Now isn't that every parent's worst nightmare? Now imagine the devastation of the parents. Now this is pain, this is heartache like never witnessed before. And even the Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh was the ultimate power in Egypt and even he couldn't remain untouched. The son whom he cherished, his heir, you know, the one that Egypt believed were born of the gods, now lay in his bed lifeless and limp. Utter devastation had even reached the palace. Now, but why take all this life? Now, who was this directed at? No, I-S-I-S, we pronounce it Isis today. How they pronounce it, I'm not sure. She was the goddess who protected children. This was her job, protect the children, and she was completely powerless to stop this. But the final plague was an arrow shot directly at the Pharaoh himself. Oh, This man, he had opportunities to hearken to the Lord, and yet he would not. He thought that he was the God, that he was powerful, that he was in charge. He thought that he was the supreme one and he would not listen. And hence Yahweh hit him where it hurt the most. And his powerless was revealed for all to see. The curtains were drawn back. And this man, he couldn't even save his own child. The most powerful man in Egypt. This completely destroyed the Egyptian belief system. It was left in complete tatters. My friend, that is the point of the plague. And my friend, the message is rather clear. Yahweh is Lord. He's the only God. He proved this before us by completely and utterly annihilating the whole Egyptian religious system. All of their gods were proved to be powerless, exposed as the fakes that they were. This is what the ten plagues did. Oh, brick by brick, the Lord deconstructed the entire religious pantheon. And doesn't this reveal to us the stupidity of idolatry? The foolishness and folly of worshipping idols? And yet even to this day, mankind is prone to idol worship. And the Christian is also susceptible. We mustn't think that we can't be touched by this. We must remember what idolatry is. When we speak of idolatry, it's not just worshipping a rock or worshipping a block of woods. But remember, idolatry is anything that we place before God. That's the definition. And when how often we are the idol of our own life. We sit on the throne of our heart and everything revolves around us. 
How often we swallow the materialism of our culture. Life comes about stuff. We want the greatest car, the greatest house, the greatest clothes and so forth. Or experiences. That can become the idol in our life. Striving for the next experience, the next holiday, whatever it may be. Well, then there's, there's work. There's sport. There's family. There's friends. There's children. There's diet. There's hobbies. Or a multitude of other things. You know, we too can be guilty of having a plethora of gods in our own hearts, living for anything but Jesus. You know, may we search our hearts and make sure there are no idols. For the Lord Jesus Christ belongs on the throne of our hearts. He alone is worthy and he alone can provide the peace, the joy, the contentment and the fulfillment that we all so desperately crave. But I don't want to leave you on that note. But I want to finish by pointing you to our God. Because that's the point of the plagues. It declares the power, the supremacy, the sovereignty and the glory of our gods. Our God is the only God, my friend, that there is no other and there is no one like him. we, We serve a great God. We serve an awesome God, the high and lofty one. There is none like him. You know, may we never forget how great our God is. Amen.